It's Monday, June 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday, gents. Hey, you too. Hey. Uh, we are going to do something we haven't done in a while, which is a round of overvalued, undervalued. We will also dip into the Fool mailbag, but let's start uh, with the overvalued because I have to believe, given the run of the stock market, this There's is a, good, a couple out this there. This is a good time to to dip into the un, the overvalued waters. Uh, wh- what do you got out there that's overvalued, Jason? <clears throat> yeah, this wasn't all that difficult, you know. And I'll, <laughs> I'll preface this by saying this is a it, this is a good company, uh, but a bad price. And I'm I'm, a, I'm looking at Zillow here. Uh, you know, to me, it's it, it's amazing <laughs> what this company has done in the way they have transformed uh, the real estate market in such a short period of time. I mean, that is. Uh, a business that, when it went public, I think a lot of us were, were very skeptical. I know I, I certainly was. Um, as time has gone on, though, what what this company, what the business has done, and what Spencer Raskoff as the CEO has done, they have really built out their identity uh, to really to really line up with their mission. And I'll read you their mission from the 10K. It says, "Our mission is to build the largest, most trusted, and vibrant home-related marketplace." to empower consumers with information and tools to make smart decisions about homes. And I think when you when you read that mission statement and you you if anybody has been to Zillow, I mean that's really what Zillow does. I mean it has brought the real estate market right to the consumer's fingertips whenever the consumer wants it. And and they have done such a good job of building out that mobile presence. Uh, the thing is when you look at the stock today, they're still operating at a loss and it trades at 108 times uh, operating cash flow. I mean, people like to rag on Amazon for being too too expensive. I mean, Amazon is making a profit, and it trades at around thirty five to thirty eight times operating cash flow on any given day. So you can see that Zillow. There are a lot of really really heady assumptions baked into the stock price. Uh, for good reason, I suppose. I mean, they are growing their premier agent subscribers. Uh, those are the agents all around the country that sell homes, and they're finding uh, that they more or less need to be uh, on Zillow in some capacity. And they're growing their unique uh, unique monthly visitors to the site, which is also very good. Uh, but my concern is when I, when I speak with agents, and this is just a handful of agents that I've spoken with, the, the common theme seems to be that these agents more or less feel like they have to be a part of Zillow because Zillow's done such, such a good job of bringing you know, that real estate market to the consumer's fingertips. Uh, it, it does sound like maybe they're not all that fond of Zillow, uh, particularly the, the, uh, the, the data that they supply. Maybe not uh, as timely or, or as accurate as, as some real estate agents w- would like, which makes me wonder down the road if maybe there's not some type of disrupting force there that, that could uh, put, you know, put Zillow in a tough spot. But, uh, you know, again, I think it's a quality business, just that the stock price today has just become detached from the actual fundamentals of the business. They're clearly investing some of that money in marketing because over the weekend, for the first time ever, I saw a Zillow TV commercial. Have you guys seen these? I've seen a couple, yeah. I, I got to say, first of all, they're great yep. because they really go to that mission statement. They really, it, it's basically, we're going to help you find the home. You know, it's, it's less about the technology, of course, the, the technology is featured, but it's more, it really, it's more of an emotional. Uh, play in the TV commercials, 
Um, I would also add that, I mean, you know, a couple of quarters ago, Matty Argersinger and I had the great opportunity to actually interview uh, CEO Spencer Raskoff as the earnings release came out. And that was great for a number of reasons, but it gave us a little bit more insight to sort of how he sees the business, things that they're focusing on. One thing that they're growing out that that isn't really adding a lot to the bottom line right now, but it's the rentals uh, segment of the business. And I think that's something that really stands to do very well over the course of time, because I mean, not everybody in this country's wants to own a home. I mean, we have a nation of, you know, maybe 63% or so of home ownership, and that's probably pretty robust. I mean, uh, so if they can continue to build out that that rental uh, marketplace as well, I, I think that uh, that stands you know, to, to certainly uh, take the business further. We're definitely, I think we're becoming more of a renter society. You're seeing rental numbers and rental income really start to spike over the last few years since the recession. Individual home ownership hasn't really picked up uh, as far as the younger generation is concerned. So, you're seeing a nice trend there, which could definitely help Zillow in that smaller segment. Yeah, and I've taken the question on Twitter a few times in regard to the stock and sort of how, how should I approach the stock today. If you own Zillow, the way I look at it today is if you own Zillow, uh, you know, my, I, I would not eliminate a position in Zillow. If I own the stock and it's done so well, I mean, I, I, I don't really – I wouldn't advise eliminating the position. I wouldn't overweight it. If, if it's something that you bought at $25, $35 per share uh, – Chances are it maybe holds a larger position in your portfolio than it did when you first bought it. Uh, and if that's the case, you might want to look at pairing back that position a little bit to make sure that the allocation is is you know within the context of your overall portfolio. I, I definitely would hang on to the business, uh, hang on to the shares because I think this I think this company still has has uh, some waves to make. But but yeah, I think today the stock price is is beyond my comfort level. All right, Taylor, what do you got out there that's overvalued? I'm celebrating National Donut Day a bit belatedly, which yep. was, I think, last Wednesday or Thursday. It was Friday. Friday? Oh, Friday. So I was even two days early there. Um, Krispy Kreme Donuts, 2013, shot out of a cannon over 100%. Until December, um, they had some bad bad couple earnings reports. Stock's pulled back quite significantly since then, but it still trades at over 30 times price to earnings. And I was going to say, it just got hit last week. Yeah, it did, just very recently as well. So it's starting to pull back. Um, and I think you know investors could look at this company to get in, uh, maybe once a, a few more percentage points in my mind, um, but certainly a better price point than you found at any point in 2011 or 2013, excuse me. Um, margins have been improving, and they need that because they need to grow. And with those thin margins on the free cash flow side, uh, without that generating, they're going to struggle to compete with Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks. I'm a little worried about the fact that they now partner with Walmart to sh- sell some bottled coffee and Keurig Green Mountain uh, to do some pods. That seems like a market that they don't really belong in to me. I understand selling coffee in the stores because they have to compete with Dunkin' and Starbucks and McDonald's for the breakfast clientele, but We'll see how that works out. I'm a little skeptical uh, with those new ventures, but I do like the fact that they're growing uh, around the nation. So we'll see. They're growing around the nation, but you look at their footprint. They, I think it's some, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60%, maybe even upwards of two-thirds of their stores are international or outside. And I look at that, and I just wonder, what, well, why is that? Is it Are they just getting better deals overseas? Because it seems like certainly when Dunkin' Brands became public a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, what you heard out of the management was expansion within the United States. Sure. The concentration of Dunkin' Donuts in New England was 
incredible relative to west of the Mississippi. So it was really easy for them mm-hmm. to say, well, look, if we just head west, we're, we're going to find our opportunity. I'm just wondering why Krispy Kreme isn't doing the same, working out of the same playbook. No, that's a good question. You see Dunkin' Donuts growing on the west coast, traditionally up in the Boston, uh, New England area. Uh, I'm not too sure why Krispy Kreme found international growth to be so uh, enticing early on. Um, but if they can grow in the United States, which seems to be a more of a donut market uh, compared to international regions, I think that you know the money that they're spending on capital expenditures could be more well spent in the United States in my mind. Isn't this a North Carolina company? Yeah, Winston-Salem. Do people Wake at- Forest and Krispy Kreme. That's really all they have going for them. Uh, right I was going to say, do, do your brethren back in North Carolina know you're, 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 you're dissing the, the home state company? Uh, I guess I, you're not dissing the company. You're, you're dissing the stock. I, yeah, I like the company as long as it pulls back a little bit. I know some people that have bought it and enjoyed a nice 2013 run. They turned me on to watching it. Uh, didn't take part in the 2013 run. <laughs> Maybe I'll get in there later this year, 2015, um, and spend my money on the stock rather than the donuts themselves. All right, let's move over to undervalued. Jason, what do you see out there? Yeah, prepare to disclose our relationship here because I'm going with Whole Foods Market. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> Co-fo- I think co-founder John Mackey sits on our board of directors. There we go. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, no, I think I think this is one that to me is is I don't want to say it's a no brainer, but it's pretty darn close because. This one just got lambasted over the course of this past you know month or so when it when earnings came out and uh, basically what came to fruition was what some of us had been concerned with for some time was that Whole Foods it, they're they're just having to compete more on pricing uh, that's the bottom line I mean you, you don't get that that uh, you know whole paycheck sort of nickname for uh, for no reason and, and in order to grow that customer base they have to you know, be able to offer more things for more people, and so one of the ways they've been able to do that is they've been able to grow out that 365 brand, you know, which is their their store brand, and and, and it's a great product. They have uh, more of those more of those products lining the shelves every day. But what it results in is it it hits them on the margin side, okay, and it and it it dings a little bit on that same store sales side, that, that comps line uh, that we've been looking at for the past you know three years. Whole Foods continues to bring in just these phenomenal numbers. And so I think from that level, they, they also maybe were a little bit of a victim of their own success because they've done so well. At some point, it becomes very difficult to meet the own, your, your own level, those numbers that you've been putting up for so long. Uh, and so when, when this past quarter's earnings came out and we saw you know, trouble on the same store sales line, trouble on the margin line, and then to top it off, really the the call was where this really just got ugly because the analysts started really piling on to that margin question, and it just they wouldn't let it go. And, and you know, management for Whole Foods got a little defensive on the call, and I think that once they started getting a little defensive, the analysts really started piling on. Yeah, it was a little bit of uh, shark smelling <laughs> yeah, blood in and, the water. And that's when you saw the stock. I mean, it was maybe down 8% after hours. And then after that call, I think it was down something, you know, 15 16%, whatever it was. Uh, but I think a lot of that had to do with the call. I, I think that's it, it's a short-sighted uh, reaction, though, because you know Whole Foods still has 375 or so stores open today with a market opportunity of somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 stores. Uh, I was kind of interested to see that they upped their market opportunity to 1,200 stores after Sprouts uh, IPO'd when Sprouts listed their market opportunities 1,200 uh, in their S1. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting sort of, uh, oh, well, we can do that too sort of a vibe. But uh, still, I mean, I think you have with Whole Foods a, a very, a very well-run company, a solid management team, and co-CEOs uh, Walter Robb and John Mackey, uh, and and they are still right in line with the strategy. And, and so I think that when you see the stock today, yeah, it, it's trading for somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-eight times earnings or so, which is like 
twice that of something like Kroger. But again, Kroger's a much more mature company. Whole Foods still somewhat new in, in the uh, space with with a, a long runway of growth ahead. And I think that if you're looking at this company as a as a 10-year to a 20-year type of holding, it's one that you can buy, tuck it away, just kind of not worry about it. I, I think this is this is a good opportunity for this one today. You know, you touched on something that and the in terms of the strategy and the name that leaped to mind was Sally Smith, the longtime mm-hmm. CEO of Buffalo Wild Wings, because – and this is something that I don't think we've ever really talked about with Walter Robb and John Mackey, but uh, – and it applies to any industry – it really doesn't get celebrated, but it really is great to see management that just is almost unflappable when it comes to strategy, when it comes to, no, this is what we're doing, and they're not really bugged by one bad quarter or anything like that. Um, and, and those guys, uh, and I'm also thinking in the case of Whole Foods in particular about the growth, how they are methodical in terms of that uh, growth opportunity and not rushing out there and saying, "Oh, we're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna drop Whole Foods stores wherever we can." They're really methodical in terms of finding the right locations because, I mean, it's just gonna be so expensive to miss on that. So it, it really is good to see. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I noted, I saw an article over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal that to me it was it was the most foolish article I've ever seen. I think it was the Jason Zweig article, uh, the intelligent investor, you know segment that he does on Saturdays. And I, I can't recall specifically who actually said this in the article, but they were talking about investing in companies like that, that look at these long-term strategies 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road and don't focus on those quarterly results. And there was a quote in there that really kind of says it all. It says, they aren't beholden to the habits of quarterly capitalism. You know, Those are the kinds of businesses that we find. It was a very David Gardner-esque type of quote, I thought, in that you really are focusing on those businesses that you see they have a long-term strategy in play. Don't worry about those quarterly fluctuations, the earnings misses and hits and whatnot. Uh, if you feel like it's a business that has a long-term strategy in play with a management team behind it that is executing on that strategy, quarters are going to come and quarters are going to go, and that's not going to really you know matter too much in the grand scheme of things. They mentioned some foolish stocks in there, like Amazon yep. and Baidu, companies that are growing rapidly, but if they decided to sacrifice that for the near-term gains on the bottom line, then obviously 10 years down the road, they probably wouldn't be where we think they're going to be. I think it's a great point. And Taylor, what do you see out there that's undervalued? I'm going with the sector, offshore drilling. Um, really been dinged earlier in 2014. Companies talk, or analysts, not companies, companies are still very bullish. Um, not just the drillers, but the exploration and production companies as well. A lot of people say 2014 might be a slow year. 2015 could start to pick back up. But um, this is an industry that's looking at... $260 billion being spent by 2018 on a capital expenditure basis, $90 billion of that currently being spent deep water on the drilling side. So I'm looking at companies like Ensco and Noble Corp, uh, two of the youngest fleets in the business. They do both onshore, near shore and deep water. Deep water is what I think you really want to look at here, um, both trading at or below book value. And so I'm thinking tremendous value here for these companies. They both pay dividends. And like I mentioned, youngest fleets in the business. And that's really the important factor here. Since Gulf of Mexico, the incident back in 2010, people are paying higher day rates for these types of ships that have dual blowout preventers to prevent something like a Macondo from happening again. And like I mentioned, the dividend, Ensco pays over 3%. Noble Corp is close to that. And, uh, Thinking about a slow 2014 or a slow 2015 is just completely short-sighted in my mind. We're talking about the majority of future oil growth 
coming offshore. Right now, only about 7% of global oil comes offshore but or in the deep water, but that's probably going to eclipse 20% in the next decade or two. So, I think this is a huge market for these companies. Do you think the that one of, if not the greatest risks for these companies mm-hmm. is that type of accident like we saw in the Gulf a few years ago. Where, And I, I'm just thinking of maybe the average investor mm-hmm. looking at that and saying, oh, no, 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 I don't, I, I don't want to be involved in that. 100% agree. That's a big risk. Uh, you, you've seen what stemmed from that, though, is uh, BP is the one that's still tied up in those uh, litigations, and they're the ones that had to sell $40 billion worth of assets to pay for potential litigation. Whereas Halliburton, um, that provided the cementing and Transocean, the rig operator like the Enscos and the Noble Corps, um, compared to BP, they got off pretty unscathed. But that that's because BP was largely to blame. To, to say that an Ensco or a Noble Corp or a Transocean could have been the one largely to blame, that's certainly a possibility. So it, it's completely circumstantial, but I think that the direction that the industry is heading as far as safety is concerned is completely different than what you saw um, back in the early 2000s late and 2010. I mean, that was more of a wildcatting period, uh, rel- kind of what you saw um, with onshore drilling in the, in the late 90s uh, when the drilling boom was really starting to take off in Texas for shale. So we're starting to figure it out. And unfortunately, something like that had to happen. But now you're seeing operators and, and drillers take the necessary precautions. You can always email us. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Got an email from Gary England in Yalaha, Florida. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, he wrote to us regarding our recent conversations over the coming uh, whiskey shortage. Uh, Gary writes, after a routine Saturday visit to our local club store that only carries fair at best bourbon... I decided to stop at an adjacent mega liquor outlet. Boy, I want to go to Yalaha, Florida. <laughs> yeah. Mega liquor outlet. Uh, to pick up a bottle of Buffalo Trace. I grabbed the only bottle on the top shelf and proceeded to the checkout. The checkout lady said, I guess we're out now. I have no idea why they only sent us one bottle. Having visited the Buffalo Trace distillery last fall, I know they're not a publicly traded company. I have no bourbon-related stocks in my portfolio, but wonder if there is a timber REIT with holdings of white oak for barrels that could be a derivative play on the increased bourbon demand. Keep up the good work. Taylor, you and I were talking earlier this morning. That's a that's a niche way to try and play the coming whiskey shortage. Yeah, I'm I'm interested. I, I don't know any uh, niche lumber REITs that specific, specifically uh, cater to the whiskey industry, but Lumber has been an issue. You saw a trucking uh, strike up in British Columbia, and rail has been overloaded with grain and and uh, oil out of that area as well. So lumber is kind of taking a back seat to some more lucrative areas. Um, I've read an article while a little while back about that, and lumber lumber companies think that that's going to pick up in the second half of this year. But with record oil coming out of the Bakken and areas like that, really taking a lot of rail space up, and lumber just can't compete right now. Is mediocre bourbon better than no bourbon at all? Uh, yeah, I mean that's I, think a, so. that's I guess it's a bit of a philosophical uh, question, but for you so. as a, as a as a bourbon so, sort of a, a middle consort, of the road, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, is it better as opposed to bad bourbon? <laughs> no, no bourbon is better than bad bourbon. I mean, so it's not like hey, it's it's bad bourbon, but still it's bourbon, right? I mean, it's kind of like pizza. You know, it's bad pizza, but well, it's still pizza, right? Have you so ever? There had, is bad bourbon that's just yeah. like no, I don't want. Have to you ever like had some? Yeah. Have you ever actually had bad pizza? I've had it. Well, I've that's I, I, I. I've had yeah, it. Maybe I have. I've, I've had, had it pizza. twice in my life. And I, I, at the time, I fully subscribed to that. Well, there's no such thing as bad yeah. pizza yeah. because, among other things, 
who can screw up pizza? And I remember going into this place in Boston one time, and a buddy of mine was like, oh, it's bad. Don't go in there. And I was like, you're, you're crazy. No, it was bad. And it was such a shock. Yeah. And it's, yeah, bad pizza's horrible. Well, a place we went to an undergrad, you know, you go a little late night, you think the pizza tastes great, try it <clears throat> the next day in bright sunlight, and uh, <laughs> never went back there again. So uh, in, in regard to the, the lumber, there is a REIT out there called Plum Creek. That is a, I mean, that's just a, it's a real estate investment trust that focuses on uh, timber. And uh, I, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about the company other than it is a, a timber-related REIT. And I do know that they, uh, they do produce uh, oak in, in a number of different states in the United States. So it wouldn't shock me at all to see them being one of the suppliers for many of these uh, barrel making companies. Now, I did research a lot of these barrel makers, and a lot of these barrel makers are like independently owned, private, family run businesses that have been around for a really long time. So, so that I thought was kind of an interesting dynamic is rega- in regard to the, to the oak barrels. But I, I'll also say, like you know, instead of maybe I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily invest in Plum Creek. Uh, the dividend really wasn't all that robust, somewhere around four percent or something like that. And you can find the same thing on any of the Dow components, really. But you know, I, I did look up on Amazon.com uh, just oak barrels. And you can buy oak barrels on Amazon. So hey, why not just invest in Amazon? And that could that could really be sort of your niche play there because you can get an oak barrel on Amazon. And if it's really all about the barrel, well, that's just, there's six degrees there somewhere. I mean, well, it I might mean, not be because Diageo is trying to get Tennessee to overturn their <laughs> Tennessee whiskey law, where oak newly charred oak barrels is completely necessary to was, qualify as that. I was going to say Gary has hit on a key component here, yeah. which is it is a it is a federal law in the United States. If you're making anything that's qualified as bourbon, or in this case, I, I, I think it's been brought into American whiskey, it's got to be new oak barrels. Yeah. If Diageo has its way, that's no longer the case. But uh, you see uh, Brown Foreman, Jack Daniels' um, owner and maker, they're trying to keep that the status quo. Uh, obviously so, because they're, they're more directly exposed to the bourbon yeah. whiskey market. Absolutely. I'd like to get one of those old used barrels where, where bourbon was aged in it already and just like leave the top off, just like stick in the house. And just, <laughs> just, just walk and be wafting like, smell. <laughs> well, a lot of people are nice... using the old ones for wine and beer now. Yeah. So it's a nice way to repurpose these barrels. Nice. All right, Jason Moser, Taylor Markman. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.